0: The book of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 45 through 54. This is on page 880 880 of the Pew Bibles. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness all over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those that were with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God.
1: Good morning. It's good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us this morning, thank you so much uh, for being with us. You being here is an honor to us, and we appreciate you being here. It encourages us, and we hope that your time... With us this morning in worship, be an encouragement to you, and we hope that you'll continue to come back time and time again. If you're driving or if you drove here in a light gold Toyota Camry and you park near the Senior Citizens Building, your lights are on. If you're too embarrassed to get up in the middle of this crowd, I've got jumper cables, and if you'll see me afterwards, I'll give you a boost. (laughs) The little boy and his father were sitting in the auditorium before worship. And the boy was beginning to ask questions about the Lord's Supper. And the father was explaining to him about Christ's death. And he had inquired more about the death. And he said it was an execution. And the little boy said, well, who killed him? And, and the father said, well, there were people that killed him. There were people that didn't like Jesus. And those people killed him. And the little boy's eyes got real big. And he looked over his left shoulder and then over his right shoulder. And he said, Was it these people? Well, now when you think about it, it was these people. Every one of us that are sinners are guilty of the death of Jesus Christ. Somewhere in a faraway land, at least far away from Mount Juliet, something happened that touched every one of us that live here today, or at least it could touch every one of us. It was a day that if you and I would have been in Jerusalem at that time, we would have no doubt said there was something eerie about that day. It would be some event that you and I would tell our children and our grandchildren, as long as we lived, we would talk about the things that we saw that day in Jerusalem. You see, it was a day that was most unusual. Those events were done, we suppose, to prove that Jesus Christ was the Son of the living God. That may be that that fact is not a difficult thing for you to believe today. But not only as we reinforce the fact that He was the Son of God that died upon Calvary, I hope also it will reinforce in each one of us why we should believe that and what these significant events that took place that day, how they played out even in our life today. You see, when we think about just a few things leading up to Calvary, it's obvious that there was a problem ever since Jesus began his earthly ministry. And that problem was, who is this man? And as a matter of fact, you remember he pulled his 12, the closest together. Do you think he asked them about who do men say that I am in Matthew the sixth chapter, just so he could fulfill a curiosity of, hey, what are others saying? Or do you think He was saying to them, Who are others saying that I am? So that He could also further that question by saying, Now who do you say that I am? They answered that question. They didn't make this up. They were telling the truth. Jesus said, Who do men say that I am? And they spoke up and said, Well now, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Think about that for just a moment. Jesus Christ the man of Galilee, the carpenter's son, the one that came in to this earth as God in flesh. He was clear in his identity from the very beginning, but yet all through the Scriptures what we find out is we find out people saying, Who is this man? We can't figure out if he's a prophet. We can't figure out if he's one of the past prophets reincarnated. We can't figure out exactly who is this man. When we go a little further over... Into Matthew the 27th chapter, if you'll remember in verse 57, Caiaphas was bringing Jesus before the Sanhedrin council. And the very thing that he would stir up enough strife among the Sanhedrin council that a mob would begin to be formed that would yell, Crucify him, crucify him. Now listen to this carefully. This same town welcomed Jesus at the beginning of that week as Jesus rode a donkey into town. They laid down the palm leaves and they bowed down to worship Him, crying out, Hail, King of the Jews! Now how could it be by the end of the week that these people would be so stirred up with anger and with envy and with wrath that they would be the mob that would be demanding Pilate, Crucify Him, crucify Him! What's the turning point? How can they stick Jesus with this kind of guilt? Guilt of what? Isn't it interesting that the very turning point that they turn on Jesus to stir this wrath is when he stands in Matthew the twenty seventh chapter and sixty three, Jesus kept silent and the high priest answered and said to him I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. That did it. That stirred the mob. When he said that's who I am they were stirred with angry, anger and they began to cry out, Blasphemy! Blasphemy! And it's from there that the roar just continued to increase and they would not be satisfied until He was nailed to a cross. Why? Because there was always a struggle to figure out who is this man. Think about it. I haven't seen a man walk on water. Now I have to tell you, as in our old auditorium area. They've been working on the area, if you've noticed, to put a screen in. To do that, they had to put a floor in what we think of as the old baptistry area. It's pretty neat to walk through that building while that was being done and see Don Vickers and Albert England just walking across what used to be water. Now, that's the closest I've ever seen in my mind to saying that's kind of what it looked like for Jesus. He walked on water. I've never seen anyone walk on water. You can imagine the people in his day and time. I've never seen someone walk on water. I've never seen someone take a leper and just cleanse him instantly. I've never seen the lame made to walk by a man's command. I've never seen the blind be able to see because he said it was so. Who is this man He can stand before the very highest of the Jews with the greatest authority. And when he is finished, they look this big and he looks this big. Who is this man? He hasn't gone to our schools. He doesn't have the education of our people. Who is this man? If he is a devout Jew that demands attention, he has to be from Judea. He can't be from Galilee. Who is this man? It didn't stop here. In the text this morning, a few verses earlier we read about Pilate. At least it's in this chapter. We didn't read it this morning. But even Pilate questions him in 11 of Matthew 27. Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. it seems that one of the hardest things for people in His day and time to comprehend was what you and I may very often take for granted. Who are you? God in flesh. Who are you? The Son of Mary or the Son of God? Who are you? Are you a carpenter Are you the Lord? Who are you? Are you a little guy from Galilee? Or are you the king of the Jews? Who are you? Jesus made sure. Get this statement. Jesus made sure that by the time 3 o'clock that afternoon of Jesus' crucifixion took place, everyone was going to know He was the Son of God. You could be an atheist before, but you would claim if you'd have been standing at Calvary just as those non-believers finally claimed, we just crucified the Son of God. What is it that took place that changed the centurion's mind, the one that led the execution, the one that led the soldiers out there to execute him, the one that would have stood by watching the whole thing from the beginning to the end to finally at the very end say, Truly, this is the Son of God. What took place that day? There's at least four things that Matthew mentions. And there are things that each in its own right is astounding but coupling them all together, it's things that cause you and I to realize just as for those people of that day, truly He is the Son of God. In our text that was so capably read in Matthew the 27th chapter, we're beginning at verse 45, He says, Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour there was darkness over all the land. That's counting by the Jewish measurements of time. You see the day began with the first hour being 6 a.m. in the morning. And so from from 12, what we would call high noon, 12 o'clock, that would be the sixth hour. Now, you know during tornado season, how sometime you walk outside and it's just about half the brightness of day that it ought to be in the middle of the day? And you know where there seems to be that kind of tint of green? And then there's just that feeling that you can't explain. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Jerusalem was full Full, overflowing capacity because Jews had come in from all over to celebrate the Passover. And you can imagine them going in and out of Jerusalem and going in and out of the buildings and and places as as Jerusalem would literally be a city running over. And you can imagine on that day somebody stepping out in the middle of the day and saying, what is this? It's dark. It's high noon. And it's dark. The time of day that the sun should have been the very brightest, but yet it's dark. We're not going to turn there, but I want you to think about this as we study each one of these. Paul stood before Agrippa one time, later on after this, and he talked about the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And he said to Agrippa, this thing was not done in a corner. In other words, he was saying the life of Jesus Christ and the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ took the attention of the world. Paul, what did you mean by that? Well, this is one example. No one in Jerusalem left that day saying this was just another every day. Everyone would have told their kids and their grandkids as long as they would live, you wouldn't believe the day that I experienced one time. It began at the time that was high noon. Everything became completely dark. As a matter of fact, it was so significant. Turn back if you will, to Amos. Amos, the 8th chapter, he even talks about this as a part of prophecy, which would be almost 800 years before it actually took place. We read in Amos, the 8th chapter, beginning in verse 9 and 10, he says, and this is prophecy about Christ's death, he says, And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight, I will turn your feast that's the Passover they were celebrating, into mourning. And all your songs and lamentations. I'll bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I'll make it like mourning for an only son. And its end like a bitter day. God tells them almost 800 years before it takes place, when i get through with the human race on that day the human race may have taken the life of my son but no one no one will miss the fact of the event and who it was he's the son of god i ask you this did it prove to be true well in the text this morning we know that other non-believers standing around declared at the end of this event that he was the son of god But it's interesting as we look even in secular writings, Tertullian was a man that was very much against Christianity. He used to go and and sit and watch Christians as they would be taken before beasts and etc. And what he noticed was the calmness and, and the way that they would face the persecution that was upon them. He was converted to Jesus Christ because of this and later he wrote about the Christian life as it was in that society. We're not talking about something that's in the Bible. We're talking about secular history. This happened at about 200 A.D. In other words, this is somewhere around 170 years to 180 years after the death of Jesus Christ. And this is what he writes in the Apologeticum. He says, At the moment of Christ's death, the light departed from the sun. Now if you notice in the Scriptures, he missed that point. It really, the light departed at noon, and he didn't die until about three that day. But still, he's given secular history which tells us it's not always accurate. But it's interesting that still, this many years later, he writes about it, but note the significance of what he's saying here. And the land was darkened at noonday, that's accurate, which wonder is related in your own annals and is preserved in your archives to this day. You see what Tertullius is saying? He's saying, listen, I can tell you about an event, but if you want to... You go back to your own history books. He's speaking to the people in that day and time. He says, your own historians have have documented this. They have written about this. What is it? It's the day that the earth went dark at noon and stayed dark for three hours. What about this darkness? Why was it dark? Perhaps it was symbolism to show that never had the wickedness of man become so great that man would crucify the only perfect man that's ever walked the face of this earth? And that man would literally crucify God in flesh? Perhaps that's why God make it dark, made it dark. It was a symbolic statement of look at the wickedness of this day. Never had wickedness been more dark. Never had it been greater than at this occasion. But I suggest to you something else. It was probably dark this day because of the spiritual battle that was taking place. I want to read to you two passages very quickly. They're on the overhead. Isaiah the 59th chapter, verse 1 and 2, What separates us from God? Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is His ear heavy that He cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He will not hear. What is it that separates us from God? You ever felt lonely? You ever felt like God just wasn't there? You ever felt like you didn't know exactly what to do, that you had no direction in your life? It very well could be that you had that feeling for a purpose because you and God were separated because sin separates us from God. You better believe that if you felt lonely, God was lonely too because He's like a father with open arms that says, I want you to come home. I don't want you to be away from me. But you say, what separates us from God? It's sin that separates us from God. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 5 and 21 and notice who became our sin. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, For He made Him, that's Jesus, He made Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Let that sink in. Why was that a dark day? The payment for the world of sin was being paid. Jesus became our sin. He paid our price carrying our guilt. Why do you think Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, Lamb of interpreted. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Never before had God been separated from Jesus. Jesus had not known in existence that had sin to separate them. They had always been one. And now for the first time in Christ's existence, he was experiencing what it was to be absent from God God, why are we not together anymore? It's a dark day spiritually, because sin had separated Jesus from God Almighty. It's a great day spiritually, because him paying the price and that separation gave the opportunity for you and I to be reunited. I don't know all of the symbolism to the darkness, but I know this: it's never been forgotten. It was an event that stopped the earth. We look a little further in Matthew, the 27th chapter, and we're skipping now to read verse 50, but what we want to especially notice is in verse 51. In the middle of the verses that we just skipped, it's the taunting of Jesus, it's the, the, the making mockery of Jesus while He's still on the cross. Now we move to the end of this ninth hour, which would be three o'clock. And he says in verse 50, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His spirit. We know two things that Jesus said at the end. Luke 23 tells us one of them. is when He says, Into, my, into thy hands do I commend my spirit. You see, He was ready to go. He was ready to die. He was ready to stop being this sacrifice. He's ready to to go ahead and die and to be resurrected. And so He cries out at the end in a loud voice, It is finished. But what takes place at that moment that He cries out, giving up the Holy Spirit, giving up His life? 51 Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. If you will be turning back to Leviticus, the 16th chapter, and as you're turning there, we have it also on the overhead. I want you to think of the significance of this, that really you and I will never be able to appreciate it in the same way of the people that were alive in that day and time. I grew up in the time period where everything that was referred to about communism, it was spoken about as things that take place behind the Iron Curtain. In other words, there was that divide, and it was as if none of the rest of the world was allowed to go behind there and to see really how were things, how strong were they in military, how did they treat the common person, what was life like behind the Iron Curtain. Well, you know, there was something that was more mystical, if you will, than even the Iron Curtain. Now, it was much better... It was far better. There's no comparison in comparing God and communism. But the point was, in the temple and the tabernacle, there was a place there that was the holy area that the priest would come into. But then there was a veil that hung, and it curtained a room in that was called the Most Holy Place. No one was allowed to go into the Most Holy Place except once a year. And that once a year was only one, the only high priest was allowed to enter there once a year. Let's read some of the history about this. And so the idea that that veil would be torn open and that anyone could just walk in and see, it was unbelievable to these people. Let's read Leviticus, the 16th chapter. We're going to read verse 2 and then skip down. Verse 2 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark lest he die. You see his death penalty. The high priest could go in at the wrong time and he was to die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. This was symbolically the presence of God. Let's read on in verse 15 and 16 and see a few more points here. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil do with that blood as He did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So He shall make atonement. Now that's the key word here. What did it mean whenever the veil rent from the top to the bottom? It deals with atonement. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. So He shall do for the tabernacle of the meeting which remains among them in the midst of the uncleanness. The high priest would go in once a year and he would take three animals. The bullock. The blood would be shed for the bullock so that he could make atonement for his own sins because he had to be cleansed before he could offer the atonement for the sins of all the people. There would be two goats or two sheep brought in. One in a very symbolic fashion, would become the scapegoat. And that goat would be let out in the wilderness and let go. But another would be the goat that would carry its blood as atonement for all of the people. And once the high priest had made his own atonement so that he was worthy to go into the high priest, then this blood of this other goat would be slain and it would be taken in. And once a year, the atonement for all of the people would be made. No one was ever allowed behind that veil. No one had ever seen behind that veil unless you were a high priest once a year because no one was worthy to come before the presence of God. What an awesome story to realize that when Jesus died on the cross, Meaning that God ripped the veil from top to bottom, not from bottom to top. God ripped that veil because of His Son's blood inviting us to His presence. Look with me, if you will, to Hebrews, the ninth chapter. Notice how it's explained in Hebrews. Hebrews, the ninth chapter, we're going to read verse 11 and 12. He says, But Christ came as high priest. That's why He came as high priest to offer blood as an atonement for us of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood He entered the most holy place once for all and having obtained eternal redemption. What does this mean? He entered into the most holy place. Before Jesus went to the cross, did He demand that He be allowed to go back into the Most Holy? Think about it. Jesus Christ walked on this earth, and He never went into the Most Holy place. Only the high priest was allowed to go into the Holy place. But once He died upon the cross, at the very time He cried out, It is finished. The veil rent from top to bottom, because through His death, He entered into the presence of God on behalf of every one of us. Now, read and greatly appreciate this next chapter. The 10th chapter of Hebrews, verse 19 and following. Look at these verses and please appreciate them for what they're worth. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest... Wait a minute! I can't go in before the presence of God. I'm not a high priest. You're a priest now. Jesus is that high priest. And now everyone has the right. Why do we not pray through a priest? Why do we not confess sins through a priest? Why do we not worship God through another individual? Christ is the only mediator between us and God. Here's how it said. Having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil, through the veil that is His flesh, And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled with an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Friends, the darkness reminds us of how wicked the deed was of that day and how Jesus paid the price for our sins. The veil in from the top to the bottom reminded everyone of that day. As you can imagine, word spread throughout Jerusalem. The veil is no longer there. God tore it down. Why? Because now everyone has the right to approach the throne of God. And then on that day also as we read in Matthew the 27th chapter, we see as we read the rest of verse 51. 51 says, The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. When we see the splitting of the rocks, that would be something that most of us would talk about for the rest of our life. I know some of our group that went to El Salvador a few years ago after the earthquake, some of you were standing on the site where you were working and you said you felt the earthquake again. gets your attention, doesn't it? Can you imagine standing there watching Jesus on the cross and you've watched Him hang there You've watched it, the darkness, through the darkness for three hours. And finally, you hear a scream from inside the city because the temple has been rent. And the whole city, no doubt, was making a stir about that. And at the very time that's happening, the earth is shaking so violently that the rocks are splitting up around us. Why does God ever shake the earth? Let's read one passage to see why God shakes the earth. Hebrews the 11th chapter, the 12th chapter. Hebrews the 12th chapter. Let's read beginning at verse 25. You'll see this on two slides here. Hebrews the 12th chapter. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on the earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. When did the voice of God shake the earth? You remember when Moses came up to Mount Sinai? The earth shook so much that everyone in great fear wanted to know what should we do. And God said, i tell you what to do. You tell the people not to come close to the mountain because if they see me, they're going to die. And you tell all your priests to consecrate themselves or they too are going to be punished. God was about to give His law. And God shook the earth to tell people that His law was coming. Now let's read on in 26. Whose voice then shook the earth. But now He has promised saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. And then He explains it. Now this, yet once more indicates that the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. In other words, what's going to shake in the very end of time? God's going to shake the earth one more time. And the symbolism that He gives here is everything that's created will literally be destroyed and the only things that are going to remain are the spiritual things. Our soul will remain. The house you live in will not remain. It won't stand through the earthquake at the end of time. Through the shaking of existence and the burning of the earth as it is devoured. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. When did God shake the earth? There are a few other times, but the main times that come to mind that God shook the earth was God said, I want you to know I'm about to send down commandments through Moses and everybody follow them. I want you to know you've just crucified the Son of the living God. You better hear Him. He didn't say that, but it's implied with the shaking of the earth. And then finally, at the end of the time, He says, that Word will be the judgment. God's Word always divides. Right now, Jesus could come into this room and He could say, everybody start out on this side of the room. Everybody moves to this side of the room. And then He could say, I want to make judgment. It means divide. I want to divide those that are following the Word that I have spoken. And Jesus, one by one, could say, move to this side. You stay on this side. Move to this side. Move to this side. You stay on this side. How is Jesus going to make that divide? With His Word. He shook the earth and gave His Word through Moses. He shook the earth at the death of Jesus that upon His death gives us the new covenant. And He's going to shake the earth one more time and that Word is going to be the final divide for us for eternity. And then finally, we give mention and all we have time is mention. But in Matthew, the 27th chapter, something takes place that always creates more questions than answers. But yet, what we do know... Makes the point very well. We read in Matthew 27, beginning at verse 52, And the graves were open. You need to read carefully here. The graves were open, and many body of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Now notice this delay in time. And coming out of the graves after His resurrection, after Christ's resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Friends, I can't explain the details of this. I can only tell you what the good book says. God said that whenever Jesus gave up the ghost, not only had it been dark for three hours, not only had the veil at that moment been rent from top to bottom, the earthquake so hard that rocks split, but they were able to look over and to see some graves open up and some of the holy ones, some of those that had lived for God, they resurrected. Now it wasn't until three days later that they went into the holy city but at that time they resurrected what was he proving isn't this ironic Jesus died and saints came to life they didn't win that day when they killed Jesus when Satan and his powers killed Jesus they didn't win He laid down His life so that we could live. Notice again the verse of the centurion, verse 54, and we close. So when the centurion, the one that had led this event, and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake, and the things that happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God, an unbeliever who led in the execution of Jesus Christ, saw four miracles. He'd never seen darkness in the middle of the day before. Not like that. He'd never heard of a veil rending in the temple from top to bottom. He'd never felt the earthquake like that, I don't suppose. And he'd never seen graves open up but he would never killed Jesus before either you have to understand where he was spiritually it makes sense what he said this was the Son of God he thought he killed him look at the mistake I've made there's no hope for me I just killed the Son of God have you ever woken up one morning and you said to yourself, what did I do last night? There's no hope for me. What have I been doing the last year of my life? What have I done with my life? There's no hope for me. Almost as if in our mind we have slain the Son of God and our sins did. But we speak of it sometime in past sense. This was the Son of God. And friends, I want to tell you this morning, That great centurion had plenty of opportunities after that to be redeemed. Acts the second chapter, Paul stood and he preached to the very Jews that were guilty of crucifying Jesus. He wasn't dead. He told them he is alive. This morning, I plead with you. He's alive. And your life can be different if it's not what it ought to be. Not by your goodness, but because of God's goodness. Because of his grace and his mercy and the sacrifice of his son. It was one of the darkest days in human history. And it brought some of the greatest hope that you and I will ever know. This morning, if you've got more questions than you have answers, there's several of us that would love to get with you individually. If there's any way we can help you, please let us know. If you know already at this moment what you want to do, you want to be baptized into Christ for the mission of those sins, we'd urge you to do that this morning if you're a believer that's willing to repent of sins and confess before man that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Maybe you have been a Christian and yet you find yourself living as if He is in the past. Make Him your present and make Him your future today. Let Him be your Lord, your God. Look forward to that day to hear Him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.